The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Nice to have you along for episode 26 of The Boys of Tech for Monday the 20th of July 2009. Hosting the show, I'm Edwin Herman and Brett King. Welcome. Howdy. Brett, I understand you went to see Harry Potter uh, in the cinema over the weekend. I did indeed. And your, and your verdict? Pretty good. Pretty good. So def- definitely worth, worth, uh, worth it. Uh, uh, even after well, six episodes... It, it it still still rates up there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to have enjoyed the books and enjoyed the movies up to that point. And Did you read all the books? I've read all the books. I they were pretty good. They got into a little much angsty teen angsty angstness for my taste in some parts, but the rest of it was um, the rest of the action stuff and lore and stuff that she created for it was pretty neat. Mm. So was that stuff all reflected in the movie? I guess you can't really portray everything in the movie in, in one oh, and no, a half, no. two hours. I think they, they, they did a good balance in the movie because, well, there's tons of stuff in the book and there's no way you're ever going to satisfy a, you know the people who loved the book and everything about the book in a movie. But I've always been of the opinion that movies and TV series based on books are just that. They are based on books. They are not the visual representation of the book. They are based, (laughs) inspired by the books. So they are something to be taken in their own. Yeah, you've got to have that in mind when you go and see these movies. Otherwise, you'll you'll always be saying, oh, it's just not as good as the book. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> which is a saying I hate to hear when somebody says that a movie is, ah, oh, it's not as good as the book. And I was like, well, it's not supposed to be the book. <laughs> it's not, it yeah, exactly. Book. It's not a book, yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, well, I'll have to catch that myself, actually, because I, oh, I love the first four. I've, I've missed, I missed the fifth one, and I, I should really see that and, and then catch number six, which is, uh, what was number six again, the one that's just out? Um. What was oh, the title? That's a good question. What was it called? Um, uh, Half Blood Prince. Half Blood Prince. That's, that's the one. one. Yeah, I have to catch that sometime before it goes uh, out of the cinema. These days, they seem to come in and go really quickly. Mm. They're only there for a mm. few weeks, unless then... they've got a good following, in which case they stay forever. So let's kick off the show with the first story this week. Uh, it's Microsoft responding to Google. Uh, Microsoft essentially is going to implement a light version of its Office software. We're talking Word, Excel, PowerPoint here uh, on mm. the web. Oh, yes, for their their new release, Office two thousand and ten. Mm, so this is what this is ju- ex- just completely a response to Google, isn't it? Basically, I reckon so. <laughs> Google's had their free online Google Docs for what three years or so now, yep. and Microsoft has finally decided they better take that plunge, make sure they get their their name, people continuing to use it. Yeah, it's about retaining. I think that's exactly right. It's about keeping people with the Microsoft brand so that they can, well, basically uh, take their money later. 
Indeed, indeed. The, the, thing, well, the thing I didn't mention is that this is free, isn't it? It's free for existing yep. Windows Live customers. Yep. If you've got Windows Live, then you will be able to access the free online Office Lite. You know, so, it, and it is. It's all about keeping people with the brand, keeping people with the name that they know, and hope and well, allowing that whole mobility and work anywhere sort of thing, which is what the whole um, online and um, connectivity thing is all about. And I'm guessing Microsoft is banking on the fact that people who are using Office Lite online will have a full version of Office installed on their PC as well. Well, yeah, actually, that's true. They probably will. But and the Office Lite will probably be the um, thing that is used on the netbooks. It's going to be interesting to see how, how this affects Google uh, apps because, you know, one of the biggest things with using non-Microsoft Office Suite products is the compatibility, you know, open office. I mean, most of it works, but mm. every so often you get something that just doesn't work. And as we know, 90% of, of business out there uses Microsoft Office. Indeed. So, you know, being able to use this Office Lite, which in theory should be, we haven't seen it yet, but should be entirely compatible with Microsoft file formats because it's from Microsoft. Yep. Doesn't that mean that it kind of renders uh, Google Apps almost, well, why would you use it? Indeed. It kind of makes you ask that question, doesn't it? It does indeed, and I'm reckoning that's what Microsoft is also hoping for. Yeah. I guess, you know, if you're a real Microsoft hater, sure, you'll go with Google, all right. But Indeed, because you'll always go yeah. with whatever is the opposite, exactly. the antithesis well, yeah. of the thing you hate. But, you know, <laughs> taking a pragmatic approach, you'd, you'd really be inclined to, to – I mean, look, look – if I look at this and I look, well, okay, let's like Google Apps or Microsoft Apps. Well, if I'm using Microsoft Office proper, you know, the proper version on, installed on my desktop for business and stuff, why why would I use anything else for the online version? Indeed. So it's, yeah, I, we're going to have to see whether, the, this could be a, a Google Apps killer. I hate to say it, but I, I kind of see this happening. Mm, it's got that potential. But it, once again, we'll have to wait until it comes out to see what it's like. How how light is this light version of Office going to be? There is a small possibility that some of the Generation Y that have been coming through the you know, internet ranks recently have been exposed to a lot of Google branding. Mm. And they may have been Googleized, if you like, if I can yep. coin that phrase. Uh, and so perhaps those people, you know, at the time, this we're talking the recent last five years, Microsoft's brand has been pretty weak, relatively speaking. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it's got a smaller market share, but just that the brand is, is not very strong at all uh, compared to, to previous times. So it, there's a possibility that the Generation Y that have come in with a strong Google, at the time where Google brand was quite strong and a Microsoft brand quite weak, may be perhaps inclined to, to, to stay with Google. So there's, there's a little bit of hope there, perhaps. There is indeed, and it's going to be an interesting battle between these two mm. big, these mm. two big um, com companies. This is bigger than, than Browser Wars, isn't it? This is all. This goes along with the browser wars because these are two big players in the browser wars as well, or at least one big player and one coming up player. Yeah, yeah. Well, something else Microsoft is doing at the moment is uh, basically a proof of concept web browser called Gazelle. Brett, can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what are they doing with Gazelle? What's it all about? It's well, it's it is an experimental browser prototype um, that is, well, it's built on the concept of multi-process browsing. So where you've got your regular sort of browser, which 
when you run it, it opens up a process. And when you look at a web page, all of the different page rendering and you know ActiveX and Java and all that sort of stuff is all handled by the one process that the browser is running in. Whereas Gazelle is a multi-process browsing. So instead of rendering the entire web page that you're looking at in the one process which the browser is running in, it instead spawns a whole heap of processes to run, uh, to render each of the different parts of that web page that comes from a different domain. So if your web page has a whole heap of stuff, apps, you know, applet java stuff that gets imported from different websites from different web domains different iframes those sorts of things it grabs each of those and renders it in its own process so putting little i guess little picket fences around each of those processes stopping them from an exploit which came in through one iframe from worming its way and doing its damage through the rest of the processes and it's built around a kernel just like an operating system. And the kernel is what contains all of the file I.O. And so the different processes that are rendering different parts of the web page, they can, those processes can talk to the kernel via IPC and can do file operations if it needs to. But if something, you know, is exploiting a vulnerability in an ActiveX thing, which is being rendered in one process over here, it's not going to be able to do any overflow or anything which then lets it execute file operation systems itself. Right. So, so it's it, going to be a lot more secure by separating out those different parts. So it is a web browser. It's not an operating system as some people seem to have been suggesting, but no. it's been built like an operating system. Yeah. Indeed. It's been designed around uh, the underlying concepts of an operating system, how it runs multiprocesses to do different parts. And that's how this the Gazelle has been designed. But Gazelle still needs an operating system to run on, so Windows Vista currently. So is it, where's Microsoft going with this, I wonder? Are they, is this, do you think this is going to eventually be the new browser for... Well, they, must be doing, they must be going somewhere with it. It's not just... Well, it is a it is a experimental browser prototype. It is part of a research. It's something a research team at Microsoft is working on. Whether or not something comes out of it, or parts of it get used in a next iteration, uh, next generation browser that Microsoft comes out with, who's to say? It does a lot of things really smart, <laughs> but it does a lot of things incredibly badly. It is just a proof of concept thing at the moment. So who's to say whether or not something will ever actually come out of this? It might be one of Microsoft's forays into what, you know, all of the different things Google's done that never went anywhere. Yeah, actually, that's true. There have been a lot of Google stuff that have kind of, well, slowly disappeared into, into thin air, really. Indeed. Concepts which looked great, had some brilliant ideas behind them, but never eventuated. This could be one of those for Microsoft. But it's got a lot of potential, uh, especially around those, um, you know, securing people's computers when they're browsing the web, preventing a lot of those, a lot of those um, attacks. Well, so, I, I got to say, it's it's really good to see Microsoft taking security seriously. This is this is good. It is really good to see Microsoft taking things uh, security seriously. Do, do you think they have to though? Do you think this is this is really more? Because they're forced to do it, and uh, rather than being complacent and resting on their laurels as they as they were some years ago, 
Well, they have to if they want to remain viable. If they, they want to remain want... in the internet game, that that's really exactly where it, exactly. Where it comes down to, isn't they, it? If they want to remain in the internet game, if they want to remain as the dominant operating system, then they've got to be security conscious. And they've got to make sure that anything that they produce to run on their operating system is security conscious as well. Sometimes they go a little too far, as most people who moved to Windows Vista discovered, much to their ire, but <laughs> they do have the right you know, intentions. Yeah, their focus is there. they got the right mm. focus. Well, actually, speaking of uh, moving to, to Vista, actually, there's been a survey recently that shows that 60% of businesses have no current plans to adopt Windows 7, which really makes you wonder what they're going to do. Are they going to remain on XP? Because not many are on Vista to start with. We know that. I mm. thought we were all waiting for Windows 7 as, you know, as, as far as business is concerned. Well, some of the big businesses that we talked about, like Telstra Australia, have you know, made it known that it is their, or at that point in time, was their intention to be an early adopter to Windows 7. But as we know, working in a you know a, a large business environment businesses not generally early adopters businesses want stability no, for, yeah. which is why tried the, and tested mm. exactly which is why the desktop <laughs> sitting on your desk is you know running on technology which has been out for a year or more and is stable and has got a good pedigree to it uh, instead of something cutting edge and that kind of makes sense as well if there's unless there's a really really strong strong, compelling driver to, to switch to something, you're not really going to do it straight away because the risks, of course, of new software are just not worth it. Indeed. You've got to settle in for the, <laughs> the teething period of the first rollout where there might be numerous bug fixes daily coming out for things which happen to be missed in the Q&A process. You, it's not things that businesses want. So, re- so really fact, what we're saying... What we're saying is that we're not surprised that 60% have no plans to adopt Windows 7. Is that, is that what we're saying? That is precisely what we're saying. Right, so it's not a concern fact, at all. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if the 40% that said that they do have a plan to adopt Windows 7 are saying that because they were silly enough to have adopted Windows Vista. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> so yeah, they probably to upgrade right. out of Windows Vista as soon as possible. I'd love to find out those figures, actually, because I, I have a sneaking suspicion that you might be right on the money there. <laughs> on to something else. Uh, Matt Stewart is a name you may not have heard of, but this guy is uh, doing something rather innovative. He's tried to get a book published, a novel, in fact, called The French Revolution. And so far, no publishers have really wanted to take the gamble. They, they were just a no, little... No, taking a bite, no. No, no, they've just been a little conservative there. So what he's decided to do is publish it himself on Twitter, 140 characters at a time. A very novel, if, you know, dubious way of publishing a novel, but <laughs> very novel way of publishing a novel. <laughs> was that pun intended? <laughs> pun intended there. <laughs> I'll tell you what we should do. Actually. We should get Matt on the on the show next week and have a chat to him about that because uh, this this is kind of kind of neat. It is. It's kind of neat. I, I actually had a look at this. The the uh, the account he's got on on Twitter. It's F R R E V for short for French and then Rev. Yep. So yeah, I had a look and uh, I, I read little bits here and there, but I didn't do it from the start. So. You know, the, it didn't really mean a lot at the time. I, I should really go back to the beginning and, and start reading through. What he hasn't quite worked out, though, what, well, I'll tell you, first of all, what he has worked out is that it's going to take 3,700 tweets. 
3,700 <laughs> tweets to complete this novel. But what he hasn't worked out, of course, is how that translates into time because he's not sure how often to send updates. Does he do it once every 15 minutes, once every few hours, or, or a page a day, or what? So mm. he hasn't quite worked that one out because it really depends on you know, on the readers and what they want, and that's what he's, how he's going to gauge it. So mm. how that translates into real time, we don't know yet, but uh, 140 characters at a time does mean 3,700 individual tweets. <laughs> I'd like to know if, if, if Twitter are okay with this. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Well, it depends, I guess, on what sort of time frame he does end up doing. If he does it every 15 minutes, Twitter might get a little, you know, annoyed. <laughs> but if he does it, you know, every few hours or, you know, a, a bit every, every you know, a, a day and that sort of thing, then it may not even, you know, show up on the Twitter radar as much traffic. Well, I think, I'll tell you what, I think we should get him on the show next week and have a little chat to him about this because mm. this, this is kind of neat. It's, um, it is kind of neat. I, I'd be very interested to um, know what, what he's using to do it. Is he mm. going to be doing it, you know, manually, which Copy you know, paste. Is, a, <laughs> is a scary concept, or if he's going to be using some sort of automated thing. Yeah, there is, there is an API to Twitter, so he, yeah, he may have written something or, well, let's put the question to him next week if we can get him on the show mm-hmm. and, uh, and see how we go with that one. So that's uh, believed to be a first. If anybody knows otherwise, they should let us know. Mm, absolutely. Qantas has decided against running an in-flight advertisement from a political activist group called GetUp. Uh, GetUp have produced an advertisement called Sensodyne, and it's basically a parody of the toothpaste advertisement that you may have seen, and this one is against internet filtering. They wanted to run it on Qantas flights bound for Canberra, so all the politicians would see it, but Qantas has said, no, no, we won't run it because we don't get into political advertisements. So Indeed. So really, it's, it's I, I can understand why this group is doing what they're doing. I've seen the ad myself, it's, it's reasonably clever. Uh, it, mm. It's about, you know, as I say, uh, you know, we've seen this in many countries already, New Zealand uh, as well, where the, the government is wanting to censor the internet. They say for child pornography, but of course it does open the doors for, for abuse and, and other reasons. And and so this group is against that. And I'm, I'm not really sure whether, yeah, I, I guess Qantas has its policies. Qantas does has its policy. Um, it's perfectly legal for Qantas to do this and um, as long as they are being fair and consistent with the you know application of their policy which um, for all intents and purposes they have been there's Qantas has every right to say no to airing a political advertisement if that is against their policy what I thought that was the most interesting thing here is the other groups which are also lobbying against the internet filtering scheme and like groups that you wouldn't think would be part of the lobby against this internet filtering such as Save the Children Australia and the National Children's and Youth Law Centre have both publicly slammed the filtering scheme saying that it's a humongous waste of money. That's (laughs) interesting. That's very interesting. They've been arguing that the money that has been spent on this filtering thing, which is like, what, $33 million or something of taxpayer money, should have instead, (laughs) would have been better spent on boosting the resources of law enforcement agencies. Well, that's probably a fair comment, really, isn't it? 
it is definitely a fair comment, and I wholly support them in that belief. Well, you know, you know what <laughs> they're the there. You know what the response is, of course. If you put that to the government, the government will say, "Well, actually, if we invest." The word being invest, not spend. If we invest $33 million in this, it means we don't need as much enforcement because then it will be filtered to start with. <laughs> yeah, but how much of this is from the net? And Well, it seems to me that a web filtering thing is more putting a Band-Aid on a bleeding arm than actually addressing the the. You know, oh, the, the root of the problem. Of concern. Yeah, yeah, actually, the, that's the true. The root of the problem. Right. So, so these people it's who putting who a can... very expensive sticking plaster on the problem instead of addressing the root cause of it and getting, you know, putting the resources, money into tackling the the, the root causes, the places where this stuff is coming from. So the, the stuff where the where it's the, the places where the stuff is made, and also the the pawn rings, if you like, of the people who who distribute this stuff and mm-hmm. swap this kind of stuff, that's really the more to, to the root of the problem rather than saying, oh, well, let's just put a filter on. Exactly. Because yeah, as, as you already um, implied at the beginning of this segment, th- by putting this in- filter in place, they've put it in, they've stated its intended purpose. Is it going to stick to that intended purpose or will other things surreptitiously get st- you know, suddenly start to be filtered out as well without Go- anybody oh, knowing? Gov- governments wouldn't do any underhanded tactics like that, would they? Governments are run by people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, look. I look. Yeah, I, I can buy. I can buy what you're saying. Mm. Mm, I buy that. Yeah, it's it's. I agree. It's. I uh, and look, it's great that these groups like get up. Are, are, in fact, you know what the the fact that Qantas has rejected the ads based on on its policies, and I'm not criticising Qantas for that because it's obviously. Well, supposedly had those policies in place right from the start, but the fact mm. that they've actually rejected it, and this has come up in the news because of that, and they're all, you know, get up as all up in arms that they can't get their ad on. Uh, that's actually brought the whole story more to, to the media's attention than ever before. Indeed, it has. So it's kind of worked. It actually way. works. Yeah, as a positive. Absolutely, this is all over the wires now. So. Um, I think they're still trying to get it, though, on TV, on regional television, I understand. So mm, there might mm, be some yep. hope there that they can screen it on regional television. But the, the one on well, Qantas flight... starting this Thursday, it will be screened on Channel 7 in Australia. I, I guess that is good. It would have been nice to get the message to the politicians travelling to Canberra Monday morning, but this is, I guess, the next best thing for them. So, yeah, good well, on them. Indeed. It's been, as you said, it's been published in all the wires, so it's it will have got in front of some of those politicians. Yep, I'd, good, good on that group, I say. Yes, it's good on them. In fact, good on any group. I like the fact that uh, you, you do have free speech and all sorts of groups can say what they want pretty much and, you know, yep. makes it a good place. It does. Alrighty, so how nice would it be if you didn't have to handle all that physical mail coming into your mailbox? Because half most of it you throw, you end up throwing away anyway. Indeed, <laughs> well, the amount of junk mail you get. Oh, it's terrible, I tell you. I, it drives me nuts. Especially, you know, the junk mail you can identify straight away is easy, you know, you put that straight in the bin, but then you still get enveloped junk mail. Mm. And that I hate because you go through the whole process of opening this envelope, what is this, what is this? And then there's a stupid colour leaflet of trying to sell you something Oh, it's annoying. Well, the Swiss postal system has formed a joint venture with a startup called Earth Class Mail. And what it effectively lets you do is have an address registered in a number of countries that they've in which are offering the service. It's, it's not every country at the moment, but there's a, a good selection. 
And what they'll do is scan your mail for you and you'll see it in your email. So you can, in fact, what they'll first do is just scan the envelope. You can choose whether to open it and have it scanned so you can click a button and then you see the contents and you can decide from there what to do with it, whether you want to, well, you can print it, you can select to reject it or recycle it, in fact. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like viewing your real mail. This is real mail, real physical mail yes. we're talking about that gets scanned and 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 uh, delivered via email, which is which is kind of neat. I think it's a very cool idea. It's great for those times when you're when you're traveling. So you've decided to take your month long holiday somewhere, and you want to make sure that any important mail that comes to you, you still get. So <laughs> instead of having somebody check your mailbox all the time, you just have all your mail diverted to the address that you get from the Swiss Postal Service if you're doing that one or any of the 170 other countries if you just sign up for Earth Class Mail and they'll, yeah, depending on what you've decided to services you want from them, they'll check your mail, get all of your mail for you and look for the important ones that you've identified and make sure that you can get access to them. Forward them on to where you are or if you want them to, they, you can have them open it up and scan them in as you said. I so could, I read so it could on have- the net. Oh, I so could have used that when I was traveling in, in Europe uh, a few years ago. That would have been so handy. As mm. it was, I had to have family and friends opening my mail for me and emailing me, telling me what was in the letter, and I had to then decide what, what I need to do, and oh, it was a pain. But yep. let, let's just uh, also clarify one thing as well. There are two services here, which are kind of the, one and the same thing in a way, mm. but let's just explain the differences. The two are there's Earth Class Mail, and then there's the what's called the Swiss Post Box. Now, the Swiss Post Box is effectively a Swiss Post branded version of Earth, Earth Class Mail. Mm. And the, so it's it's like a franchise, really. It is, but, the, but one of the <laughs> it's important the Swiss branded ones. It is, and there is one other important difference, of, of, apart from the, the branding, is the fact that Swiss Post itself will do the scanning. They'll and, do the opening and scanning, yeah. and all of the security stuff. Uh, they'll handle that, so it gives you a little extra, uh, I guess, peace of mind knowing yes. that your sensitive, possibly sensitive mail, is going to be handled appropriately. Yes, because absolutely, Earth Class Mail is 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 a, is a just a company, and you know, sometimes people sort of think, oh, well, you know, do I really want them scanning my mail? What are they going to do? Are they going to read it and all that sort of stuff? Whereas, Indeed. people are more likely to to trust a, po- a postal system to do that. So. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, the Swiss, now the Swiss post box is currently only available in Switzerland, but it's also going to do Germany soon, Austria, France, and Italy. So that version, if you like, is, is going to grow into other countries as well. So yeah. I, I guess, I'm, look, I'll tell you what, if I, I would trust the, uh, the, the, the post office one a little bit more than I would the, the other one, simply because yeah. I don't know who's behind the other company. Exactly, and it is a private company. But yeah, I, even though personally I may decide not to opt for having anybody open my mail, but I think it would it is a brilliant service that I would sign up for for just that whole filtering of your mail, knowing that if it's a letter or you know if it's in an envelope and doesn't look obviously junk mail, then send it to me. All of the other stuff, recycle it, please. Yeah, actually, that's that's a good way of doing it. Yeah, because you can have it forwarded. Yeah, that's right. You because you see the the scanned envelope, and the at that point you decide. Please open and scan it, or forward it to forward me, it to or me you know, physically, it. or recycle it, yeah, or trash it, or or, or archive it. So, yeah, that's kind of neat. I like it. Mm. Saves you having to do it yourself. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, I, like I say, I, I hate the... Because, uh, you know, when you get an envelope and it contains junk mail, it's such an anticlimax because you open this envelope thinking, oh, what is this? Mm. Such an anticlimax. It is. So, yeah, no, the great service. Indeed. Hope it does well. Mm, I hope so too. And, Brett, was there anything else you wanted, you wanted to raise? Because that's all I've got for international stories this week. This is a side one. You have missed the snooping through the power socket. Oh, yeah, we should. That's right. We should. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that one just briefly. They've some. Re- this is actually interesting. Some research. This is really interesting. It, it, this goes along with a whole heap of the really interesting security and eavesdropping stories that come out of technology. This one is particularly interesting. Gives you a little bit of the willies when you think about it. Really. Oh, it does. It does. Let's, <laughs> let's tell our listeners how it works. The, the researchers, have, first of all, what, what, what is this? Well, the researchers have found ways of detecting characters being typed on the keyboard by fluctuating currents in your power socket, in your mains power. So the way Indeed. it works, <laughs> which is scary, isn't it, really? Indeed. It's a very, very, very sophisticated keylogger. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So the way it works is that in a PS2 cable, now this is, they've only done it on your PS2 at the moment, which you're probably thinking, well, who uses PS2? Which is kind of what I'm thinking too. But um, a lot of a lot of people still have a PS2 keyboard, especially people who, you know, have grown to love a particular keyboard, the the feel of the keyboard. Oh, yeah, so the, they keep clicky, that. Yeah, mm. clicky keyboards are all all the rage of people who know about them. Oh, I had and a so keyboard. Oh, yeah, for ages. I had a clicky keyboard. <laughs> I've got a clicky keyboard from I don't know eighties or something. It's awesome. I love it. I don't yeah. use it because I've got nothing with PS2 on it. That's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, let's. So how it works is that the the cables, the six wires inside a PS2 cable, are typically very close and poorly shielded, which means that as you press a key, some of the the, the fluctuations in the current leaks into the earth wire. Now, of course, the earth wire eventually meets up with the earth wire in your mains socket because that's where earth wires go and they all go together and get earthed. And so using that or knowing that, they found that they can actually read those fluctuations further down the power, the uh, you know, the electricity line uh, as far as 15 metres away. So this could be a good way of snooping uh or you know, snooping key presses in say the same building, such as a hotel, for example. You could be in another room in the hotel as a mm-hmm. as a spy, and effective effectively uh, using this technique, you can listen to to yep. keystrokes. You can log all of the keystrokes mm. of the the people in the the rooms around you. Should we be worried? Oh well, I don't. I don't <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> as with any of these things, you go, "Wow, that's how in the world do I protect myself from that thing?" And well, if you need to protect yourself from it, then I'm sure you'll find a way. But the thing, this is, I guess, relatively sophisticated, right? So it's not it is what, very it's not sophisticated. Your, this isn't yeah. this isn't your average everyday Joe <laughs> being able to sort this stuff out, right? So you, um, if your neighbour was wanting to snoop, he wouldn't just be able to. Well, there's a far that. easier way. It's called malware. <laughs> Social oh. engineering. Get somebody to install, you know, Bongo Buddy or something. <laughs> a much easier way of getting key loggers. True, because but we, yeah. it's a brilliant. Um, this is something, yeah, you'd find more used in, as you're talking about, that the espionage, the spy world, and less in the, the, the regular neighbor snooping on you. I'll tell you what, one of my uh, internet service providers 
provides me with is uh, there's a I've got a webmail interface and on a public computer it's got a link saying click here if you're on a public computer you click there and it brings up a virtual keyboard and this mm-hmm. virtual keyboard is basically just a an image of a of some keys laid out on the qwerty you know standard uh, configuration and you click the keys with your mouse and the JavaScript places the the right letters in the right place and you can do that for entering passwords so that's excellent that's that, gets, so, yeah. that gets rid of one of the biggest concerns people have about using public terminals or going to internet cafes and that is that there could be a keylogger on there who who knows whether or not that person behind the counter might have installed something to snoop on people's email or bank chat all that sort of stuff and that's definitely a way of getting rid of it mm. use the on-stream keyboard that completely bypasses the there's a regular keyboard. There's no you can't keylog that. No, no. I I haven't actually used it yet. To be honest, I used it once at home just to play with it, but I've <laughs> never really used it. But that's that's more to do with the fact that I never really checked my mail from a, a public terminal. So, mm, mm. no, that's that's pretty neat. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, there's it's amazing the sorts of eavesdropping stuff which comes out of technology. There was one a number of years ago which I thought was a pretty neat thing, which was being able to see, being able to read and see what was happening on somebody's computer screen by the light, the light flickering patterns in a darkened room. Was that real? I wasn't sure if that was real. Is it, do you think I'm, that's true? I'm not sure because, well, nobody publishes anything really in you know, in depth. In detail, no. But it was an interesting concept. It's plausible, put it that way. It's a plausible concept. I'm not sure how easy it would be Mm. to pull off, really. But that's (laughs) scary. But it is. It is interesting about those. But who really knows? Because sometimes you'd be surprised at what actually works. For example, the, the microphones that you can get, which effectively are like lasers and read the vibrations on windows. So you can see the vibrations of people's well, of noise coming from inside the room, such as mm. people speaking, and using that as your basis, you can actually build a device that effectively is a, is a laser microphone that picks those things up. It's incredible. In yeah. fact, I'll tell you, a lot of the secret services, I know that the ones in New Zealand here do this as well, and I'd, I'd imagine this would be standard worldwide. In the, in the intelligence agencies, on their windows, what they have is they've got a loop of wire going around the window pane, and it's hooked up to a uh, a random uh, noise generator, if you like, and so it, it creates tiny little vibrations, basically noise, just just junk. So that mm-hmm. if anyone trying to do this technique on one of those windows, just you won't pick up anything. You'll pick up a whole heap of white noise. Indeed. So hmm. yes, yeah. But then you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, who would have thought that you would be able to log somebody's keystrokes by measuring the power fluctuations in the Earth line in the room opposite? <laughs> I know, I know. Actually, there's something. There's been another one as well. Not long ago. Well, I say not long ago. It's probably a year or year and a half now. And that is, they some researchers have found that each key has a unique sound, and so just by recording the sound of someone typing, you can actually work out what keys they are. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I wonder if that's really true. Well, I suspect it <laughs> you'd would You'd have be... to know the keyboard. Well, no, I think you'd have to know the keyboard and the person and how they push the, the keys because that's all part of what creates the sound. But Precisely. I, I, I suspect the, the thing to that is is that, you know, once you know the, the pattern, like once you've calibrated, if you like, if you know what I mean, then, then you can actually... Decipher well, the, what's the been... obvious get around for that is to eat potato chips over your keyboard. 
because the more gunk you get under it, it's going to change <laughs> yeah. what everything sounds like, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> so eating over your keyboard does have some security implications. <laughs> Indeed. Some better security benefits. <laughs> the, mm. the, the health benefits and the, you know, grossness factor. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't stand crumbs it's there, on but, you know, maybe it'll make it so that people who've been listening to the way that you type and on your keyboard won't be able to know what you're typing anymore. <laughs> and how do you get around this PS2 problem? Do you just use a USB cable, I suppose? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Just use USB. <laughs> It seems to me that every trick in the book in terms of uh, spying techniques, there's always a, a countermeasure. Indeed. Makes it very, <laughs> very interesting. Interesting sort of space, that. What's that whole predator-prey relationship? Mm. You build, <laughs> somebody builds a better mouse trap, somebody builds a better mouse. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty, well, I'll tell you what, that does uh, conclude our international stories for the week then. So let's take a short break and when we come back, we'll look at the New Zealand stories. Alright, welcome back. The New Zealand stories for this week, Telecom XT Network has a attracted 100,000 people so far. But what was rather interesting from that, that sounds quite like quite a lot, but mm, they're not coming... It does sound like a lot, yeah, but they're not coming from Vodafone. No. So these these must be either new subscriptions or people effectively upgrading from the T3G network. Mm. So I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting because I, I did expect a, a little bit of a exodus off of Vodafone with, with all the XT advertising. But no. Yeah, it was but yeah. So, telecom's an interesting one. They so want the iPhone. Yeah, actually, did you see what they did recently? Uh, no. They, no. uh, well, what they've done is they've put out this advertising, say, buy yourself an iPhone outright, so you pay the $1,000 price, mm-hmm. buy, buy an iPhone and we'll give you a $600 credit when you put it on the Telecom XT network. This is Telecom <laughs> saying that. Wow. So they really want the iPhone, because I remember when the iPhone first came to New Zealand, tele- we knew Vodafone were going to get it, and Telecom were apparently in talks and really, really wanted it, but just didn't. So now what they're effectively doing is, in a way, they've got the iPhone by saying, go buy yourself one from the Apple store for a 1000 bucks, and we'll put $600 towards your, your account. So it's only effectively $400. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. Hmm. That is quite tempting. It's quite interesting, though, because they obviously haven't done a deal with Apple yet, which no. I thought was interesting because... You think that that's the path that they'd go down, but I guess it didn't happen, so they're, they're using this little workaround technique. Mm. All right, NBR is going to lock down about 20% of its content on its website. This this kind of seems a little 1990s. What, what they're doing is going to charge for premium content, which mm. they've tried before and failed. So I'm not quite sure what makes them think it's going to work now, but I don't know. Maybe I'll be surprised. Yeah. There will be something to see because, as you said, uh, back then a lot of the news services did decide to embrace the internet, but they would do it in a subscription basis, and so you had to subscribe to get any content, and they would have minimal other content on there, and it was a flop, big flop. It was, absolutely. uh, Everybody just went to aggregators. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> who offered the news for free. So here NBR has said we've, they've, they've learnt from what happened last time, what other people went through, and they reckon that they're going to be doing it differently. And 
what they're going to be offering will work. It'll be interesting to see if it does. It sounds like they've got a good reason for doing it, or they're saying they have a good reason for doing it. They are wanting to, you know, the costs of doing all of this journalism, all of the, you know, news research, that sort of thing, that hasn't gone down, and they don't want to be laying off journalists and laying off staff to cut costs so that they can remain competitive and, you know, then shooting themselves in the foot as they then produce less real journalism. But they don't – but you can't do that if, you know, you're providing all of your effort for free and not getting any returns. Well, some are, some are sceptical about the move. I know, I know Bruce Simpson from Aardvark uh, has, has certainly said it's not going to work. I've, I've read his column. Uh, yeah, it's – He's, he's not so sure. Mm, it will be interesting to see if they actually can pull it off. I do, yeah, I do have to agree with Bruce there that it will. It's unlikely, but they may pull something out. They may be offering some. Thing really good for subscribers to make people want to actually subscribe. Well, I think they'd have to. They ha- they have to have a point of difference. Otherwise, people will just go somewhere else, or, or you know, it's they have to be offering people some value for that because it's not a it's not just a normal nominal fee either. They're offering, I think, was it eighty nine dollars for six months, and that's an introductory offer. So wow. that's not even the normal price. The normal no, price is that, higher than that. That is so quite expensive. So it's like, well, you know, what well, what are you getting for that? Then, yeah. So, I have to be offering something really good. Mm, maybe a free iPhone <laughs> on the Telecom XT network. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. We'll It'll be see. interesting to see what they do when it actually comes out. We'll have to have a look at it. Mm, for sure. Uh, yeah, look, I tell you what, you get your credit out, card out and subscribe and tell me what's on the in the subscriber content. Sound like a deal? <laughs> no, no, that's your job. Oh, oh okay. Uh, we'll think about that. We'll have to solicit donations from listeners. <laughs> Find somebody who's subscribed. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Yeah, in fact, how, what we should do is invite people now, and listeners now, that if you're going to subscribe to this, write to us and tell us why. Our website it is boysoftech.com. Mm. Drop us a note there. and Yeah, let yeah. us know what it is about it that makes it worth it. So the last story for New Zealand is that we may be getting a new, another broadband cable across the Pacific there somewhere. Mm. Mm. Well, a another cable and uh, an upgrade to the main trunk line, as it were, as well. And, yeah, a whole heap of new cable being laid around the Pacific. Well, this is good, isn't it? It's... Most of it's going to be subsidised by the French government, and of course, the reasons for that is they've got there's some French territories out there in the South Pacific. There's uh, Tahiti, and there's which is basically French Polynesia, and there's New Caledonia. Mm-hmm. So those, the, the you know, that for France, they've they've got a vested interest in keeping those territories online and well connected, you know, being well connected. So as part of that, uh, they're talking about bringing the cable through to New Zealand and I think Hawaii as well. So this, mm. this could be a, a bit of a win for New Zealand. Well, it'll be – it's more of a backup solution really because um, the it's not designed to be a high-capacity cable and it's not designed to be massive – you know, it's not designed to scale massively to for future needs for non-island customers. It's about taking all of those different Pacific islands and linking them all with – you know, good internet backbone. 
So why yeah. come to New Zealand then? Is, is it for redundancy or, or what? It's for redundancy. It's to hook into the Gondwana 1 cable, which is the new cable coming into Sydney, which is being uh, subsidised by the Australian government. So maybe not that much benefit for New Zealand. Not a lot of benefit for us. Yeah, it is more of that sort of backup thing. The cool news that comes with in with this is that Southern Cross, the Southern Cross cable, uh, our big pipe, is being upgraded. It's having a nice big upgrade oh, going good. What's through it, there. What's it going from and to in terms of capacity? Do you know? Well, I can't remember what it is currently, but it is being upgraded to uh, 1.24 terabits per second. That's enough to carry, for instance, simultaneously streaming five million songs from iTunes. <laughs> I like the way they give that in, in number of iTunes songs. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> number of iTunes songs and number of high-definition television programs. It's brilliant. <laughs> Things people can understand. It's the, it's the metrics of the 2000s. <laughs> mm, number of iTunes songs. Um, I just had a quick look at the Southern Cross uh, website and it says that the current cable capacity from going out of New Zealand is there's 480 gigabits per second going out to, I think it's Sydney, mm-hmm. and then heading to the uh, States also, well, but yeah, 480. So it looks like we're getting 480 gigabits at the moment going up to 1.24, you said. So that's effectively trebling the, the capacity. Yep. Or close on dribbling. Yeah. So that should be That'd pretty be nice. good. Yeah, that's pretty what we good. need. And along with that, apparently some price cuts. So Price cuts? Yes. Interesting, eh? Interesting. Very interesting. I doubt, I doubt us poor little end users will see anything about that. No, because the ISPs will basically take all the savings. Exactly. <laughs> that's how it's going to work. We know that. We're not dumb, yep. are we? <laughs> We're not naive in, in that respect. No. But... Very cool that we're going to get a better. Oh, yeah. A fatter pipe, as it were. But hopefully, <laughs> less YouTube buffering. Mmm. Alrighty. Well, that's our show for this week, then, Brett. Thank you very much for hosting it with me. Always fun. Alrighty. So, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and see you again next week for episode 27. Bye bye. See you later.